As you turn to 1 Corinthians 15, let me share a vivid memory I have. I have this vivid recollection from Driver's Ed when I was 15 years old. Do you all remember Driver's Ed? Did you all take Driver's Ed? Or maybe you're a youth and you're in Driver's Ed right now. Um, I remember going through all of that you were supposed to do. You practice driving the car and you take all the tests and you answer all the questions. And, and I remember taking a specific test one day in Driver's Ed and the question was something to the effect of list 10 safety features that are present in a car. I'm sitting there, okay, I can do this, right? My response, I'm going, okay, so safety belt, right? Seat belts, airbags, and then I drew a blank. I had nothing more to say at that point. I was like, well, when you get in an accident, these things help protect you. I typically don't go blank on tests, but for whatever reason, I absolutely drew a blank at that moment and couldn't think of any other safety features that were present in a car. And I don't recall if it was sometime later or if it was when I was talking to my teacher about the test, because I turned it in with just those two answers because I didn't have anything else to say. And I had this light bulb moment. I had this epiphany moment. And he either said to me or I realized on my own that nearly everything in a car is a safety feature in one way or another. The windows and the seats and the, the windshield wipers and the review mirror and everything is meant as a safety feature basically in your car. But... Most of the critical safety features in your car are there to prevent an accident, not to help you in the event of an accident. Think about it a little bit. Your windshield wipers are there to get rid of the rain so that you can see through your windshield and see where you're going so that you don't run into something. Your review mirror is there so that you can see what's coming up behind you so that you don't get run into by something. Most of the most critical safety features in your car help prevent an accident rather than just protecting you in the event of an accident. Like, that's true, Brad, but letting us know that you're bad at taking tests doesn't help us this morning. Let me explain. As I was thinking this through, I, I found myself considering that this is very similar to what Paul does in our text in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. In many ways, in 1 Corinthians 15, he encourages the believers to use their review mirror, to look back to Christ's resurrection, to look back to what Christ did on their behalf for them and to get hope from it. He encourages them to use their windshield wipers, to use their windshield, to look forward to Christ's one day eventual return and to gain unity and hope from that. And then he encourages them to drive accordingly. He encourages them, use these safety features that I've given you. Use this backward glance and use this forward glance and live in light of both of these realities. He encourages this church to find hope and unity in Christ's victory. And as we read through this text this morning, I would encourage you to find hope and unity in Christ's victory as well. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is not true that, or if the, it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with bears at Ephesus or beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, we have already celebrated Christ's resurrection from the dead this morning. We've sung your praises for what you've done in us and through us. Lord, we are humbled As we come to this text this morning, it's so easy to get off track. It's so easy to focus on things that aren't the central point. So Lord, as we teach through this, as I teach through this, I pray that you would give me the words, that you give me clarity and courage to proclaim the truth of your word, and that you would soften hearts, that you would open minds, that you would help us to see your word for what it is, truth. Lord, that you would help us to submit our lives to that truth, and that you would help us to live in light of that truth. So, Father, we just present this time to you and ask that you would use it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in case you haven't been with us in our study through 1 Corinthians, this broken church, let me catch you a bit up to speed on where we are in the book. Paul has been addressing this letter to the Corinthian church, this self-sufficient, arrogant church. And he's addressed their divisions over leadership. They were fighting about who was in charge and which preacher they liked the best. He's addressed their disagreements over morality. They had a number of different moral problems taking place in their church that they needed to address. He addressed their disputes over their rights and freedoms as they were jockeying for position and fighting for whose preference and who got to do what they wanted, irregardless of what effect it had on each other. And then he addressed their disunity over their gatherings as they were coming together and they were expressing their spiritual gifts chiefly for their own good and not for their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now here in chapter 15, Paul shifts into one of the most beloved chapters in the whole of the New Testament. He focuses on the resurrection. And the question we're forced to ask, and hopefully the question you found yourself asking last week was, why? Not why discuss the resurrection, hopefully that's fairly straightforward and apparent to you, but why discuss the resurrection here? Why discuss the resurrection now? as he's headed on the off-ramp at the end of his letter to this broken and divisive church. Have you ever considered that? 
Why is the most glorious text on the resurrection of Jesus Christ found at the end of a letter to a broken and divided church? I believe that here at the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he focuses their attention on the resurrection as a source of unity for this divided church. He teaches them about the resurrection to provide a source of unity for this divided church. And he gives them four unity-building benefits of Christ's resurrection. Dimitri spoke of the first one, the truth of the gospel that we stand in last week. I've called that unity and certainty. The certainty of the gospel, the certainty of the hope we have in Christ. Appreciated Dimitri's covering of that last week. If you missed it, go back and listen to it online. This week, we shift focuses to the unity we have in victory. Unity in the victory of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that as we walk through this text. You'll have to come back over the next two weeks if you want to find out what the other two unity-building benefits that Christ gives us here are. And on that subject, we're going to be wrapping up 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter morning for our Easter services. I would encourage you to come and to invite your friends to come. That's going to be a glorious morning as we look forward to Christ's return that day. But here in 1 Corinthians... Paul lays out three benefits we gain as a result of Christ's resurrection. First, we gain hope from past certainty. Hope from past certainty. We see this in verse 12 through 23. He addresses what was likely a question that they had written to him about in verse 12. Look at this. He says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You understand what he's saying? He's saying, how can there be no resurrection? Apparently, some of them were arguing that there was no physical bodily resurrection for believers. It's very unlikely that they were arguing that there was no life after death. But that was a common Greek thought, a common Roman thought of the day, that there was just kind of this ethereal spiritual existence that occurred after death. So likely the church had bought into this idea, and some were proclaiming that there was no bodily resurrection from the dead. And Paul says... How about we take some time and we consider that? Let's take that to its logical conclusion. What would that sort of theology result in as far as your faith goes? Watch this. And he he lays out a number of logical implications here in verses 13 through 19. You see the construction of this logic when he says, if, then, if, then. You're going to see this in a number of times. But his overall premise occurs in verse 13. Look at this. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He says, if there's no categorical resurrection of the dead, then we can't say that Christ was raised from the dead. He repeats this and doubles down on this in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ couldn't have been bodily resurrected. And then he lays out five key implications of that for our faith. And these are critical. If Christ was not raised from the dead... It means this for our faith. Look at this. First, it means we are preaching and have faith in vain. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Then you're saying there is no resurrection. That means Christ couldn't have been raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, why are we even preaching? Why did I come to you declaring the gospel? Why did you place your faith in a dead Jesus? If there is no resurrection from the dead, he said it's all worthless. The preaching and the faith is all vain if Christ didn't come back from the dead. 
He goes on, he says in verse 15, that we're actually misrepresenting God. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. You following Paul here? He said, if you really believe the dead are not raised and Christ wasn't raised, then we're lying to you. Remember in the previous section that Dimitri talked about last week, he said Christ appeared to more than 500 people at one time. It's a mass delusion if Christ isn't raised from the dead, if people are not raised from the dead. We're found to be misrepresenting God. He goes on in verse 17 to talk about the futility of our faith and forgiveness. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, and if Christ did not come back from the dead, vindicating his victory over sin and death, then what have we placed our faith in anyway? Because if Christ paying the penalty for our sin on the cross, dying and being married for three days, was not vindicated by the Father as saying that sacrifice was good for sin, then your sins have not been paid for. You are still under condemnation of death in your sin if Christ never came back from the dead. Without the resurrection, you still fall under the condemnation of God. Your faith would be futile and forgiveness would be worthless. And what would that result in? Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He said, if we have not had our sins forgiven, affirmed by Christ's resurrection and vindication of the Father, then when we die, that's it then those who have died have perished, and they have no hope. In fact, he says, what they have for hope is a pitiable hope. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because we have wasted our lives. If Christ was not raised from the dead, if Christ was not shown to be the victor over death, then our preaching and our faith is in vain. We're actually liars claiming something that isn't true. Our sins have not been forgiven, and when we die, we have died under the condemnation and wrath of God, and so therefore, we have a pitiable hope. Paul has no place for this modern liberal theology that denies the miraculous of Scripture. He says, if you deny or spiritualize the resurrection of Christ from the dead, just say, that's just a metaphor, that's just an allegory, that's just a spiritual reality that doesn't really happen. He's saying, without Christ's resurrection, we are fools. We are wasting our time. If Christ didn't literally come back from the dead, we are fools wasting our time. If someone could find Christ's bones it would obliterate Christianity and nullify our faith. That's Paul's argument. That's not my argument. That's what Paul is saying. 60 years A.D., basically, writing the book of Corinthians. Remember, he's saying, you can go talk to the people that talk to Jesus Christ. This would have been an easy thing to validate, right? They could have walked to the tomb of Jesus if there had been bones in the tomb. They could have spoken to people that saw him die and saw him stay in the grave. Instead, Paul puts it out to his opponents. He says, go talk to him. You want to know if Christ was raised from the dead? Go talk to him. You can do that. Because without Christ's resurrection, we are fools wasting our time. 
And so if someone can present to us tomorrow the bones of Jesus Christ, it obliterates Christianity and it nullifies our faith. But it hasn't been done. They didn't produce his bones in the first century and they can't produce his bones now because we serve a risen Savior. He says that in verse 20. He says, but in fact, I'm done with the hypotheticals. Let's talk about the reality here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's talk about the hypothetical negative. Great. But what really happened? Christ has been raised from the dead. That makes no sense to deny the resurrection. Now, let me explain this first fruits language because this can be a little strange to us, right? He has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. This is a common thing. We're not an agrarian society. We don't understand how this works. But if you want to read more about it, read Leviticus 23, 9 through 14 this afternoon. And basically what would take place is as the harvest was coming in in the fall, the first fruits would be gathered up and they would be brought to the temple and they'd be waved in front of the altar as a representation of God's faithfulness and the assurance of future harvest. This is just the beginning of what God is going to bring to us. See why Paul relies on this. He's saying Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. See that? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the sign of those who have fallen asleep. He said if Christ was raised from the dead, and that was the guarantee of our future resurrection, then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, are also raised from the dead. Now this terminology, this fallen asleep, it can be a little strange because we're like, well, what does that mean? Is that speaking of some soul sleep? Is that speaking of some physical reality? I think what he's speaking to here throughout the New Testament, fallen asleep refers exclusively to believers who have died. Believers whose bodies have died. Now, to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord, but the body awaits the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day when our spirit will be unified with our body and we will glorify him in the new heaven and the new earth. But he says, Christ is the down payment, he is the deposit, if you will, that guarantees the future resurrection for all the rest of us. He says, how does this, how does this take place? There's, there's two representative realities we need to consider. Look at verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He says, Adam, the initial man, resulted in death. Adam rebelled against God. Adam did the one thing God told him not to do. Adam ate the tree from the knowledge of the, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and at that moment, all of humanity died with him. Adam, as our representative, did exactly what every single one of us would have done and broke the one rule God had. And as a side note, this means that Adam had to be a real individual. Just for the record, Adam cannot be a hypothetical person out there somewhere. Adam and Eve have to be real people that defied a real God and a real fruit in a real garden for this to be true. And as a result of Adam's failure, on our part, original sin came to all of us. All of us suffer from this indwelling sin that we're born with, that we affirm through our own choices to engage in evil behavior as well. We affirm Adam's rebellion by saying, God, I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. 
I want to do whatever I want to do regardless of what you say. But, but Christ, Adam brought death. Look back at verse 21. For as, a, or as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Adam brought death to the human race. Christ brings life. A quick clarification here. In verse 22, we run into something interesting when it says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Is this an indication of universal salvation? That everyone everywhere will one day eventually make it to heaven? No. Because you would have to extract this from the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All of last week, Dimitri preached on and Paul was talking about how the gospel is the means of salvation for everyone who believes. And you find this in both verses on either side, how Paul makes the same argument here. He says, look, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it's coming those who what? Belong to Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Christ is who he's talking about. So this life comes to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He's not speaking of universal salvation here. But then he stresses the sequence, and he stresses why the Corinthians are struggling so much with this, because they're not seeing people raised from the dead every day. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. He's saying, look in your review mirror. Christ was raised from the dead. People have verified that, and they have spoken to that. But there will be a gap before believers will be raised from the dead. They will be raised from the dead, quote, at his coming. That resurrection waits until Christ returns. So this Corinthian church is saying, I don't see people raised from the dead. And he's saying that's exactly the case. Christ was raised from the dead. Everyone else will be raised when Christ comes back. All humanity shares in the death of Adam. And all believers share in the life of Christ. That's his point here. He's saying Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection. I think some of you are saying there is no resurrection. There is no bodily resurrection after the grave. Look in the rearview mirror. Christ was raised from the dead, and if Christ was raised from the dead, that means that those who have placed their faith in Christ will one day be raised from the dead as well. And this certainty should result in hope in the church. This certainty of a resurrection one day should be the source of hope for us in the church. We must, as a church, stand firm on a real, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, we are of all people most to be pitied. That is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. You cannot eject that from the Christian faith. And that means that our real, future, bodily resurrection should be a source of hope and worship. Sometimes people struggle with the idea of ultimate reality and heaven because they think we're just going to be these ethereal spirits floating around playing harps with wings. That is not the way Paul describes the resurrection here. That is not the way Revelation 20 describes the new heaven and the new earth. Even real resurrected bodies, worshiping God in communion with one another, celebrating what God has done in the renewed heaven and the new earth. That is the hope that Christians rest on because they look in the mirror and they say, Christ was raised, we will be too. 
Now, I recognize that in a room this size, there's probably some that are skeptical, even as I say that, sitting here today. You find yourself going, Brad, are you really arguing that Jesus really died, was really buried, and really just came back from the dead? That doesn't just happen. I would say, I agree with you. That doesn't just happen. I don't see that happen every day either. But I would submit to you that it is far easier to believe in an all-powerful God that created the universe and created life initially and is therefore able to bring life back to a dead body than it is to believe that through billions of years, despite the mathematical impossibility of it, life spontaneously sprang from nothing. Which requires more faith? I would encourage you, do not let the resurrection be a smokescreen for your rejection of Christ. If you don't want to submit your life to Christ, if you don't like his rules and his requirements for you, say it out loud, but don't let the resurrection be a smokescreen. It takes far more faith to believe that life came from nothing than to believe that the God who created life could put life back in Christ's body. So we should gain hope from Christ's resurrection. But secondly, we should also gain unity in future victory. Look at verse 24 through 28. Paul leads off in this discussion with, then comes the end, verse 24. Then comes the end. It's his way of tipping his hat that he's talking about eschatology. Eschatology is a big word in theological circles that means the study of last things, the study of when Christ returns, if you will. And to some, I realize that that doesn't mean very much. To others, you're getting out your study Bible, you've got your wall charts, and you've brought your first aid kit this morning expecting injury and inevitable burns to take place. I assure you that's not going to be necessary in our time together this morning. And I say that because Paul's emphasis here is clearly not on when Christ will return, but on what he does when he comes. We can have discussions about end times. I'm happy to entertain that conversation afterward. But Paul's emphasis is what Christ is doing when he comes. Look at verse 24. It describes Christ's end time activity. Then comes the end, when he, being Christ, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Paul describes Christ's end times activity here as delivery of the kingdom and destroying his enemies. He says when Christ comes back, this is what's going to look like. This is what he's going to be engaged in. He begins by conquering creation. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All his enemies under his feet. When Christ comes back, he's going to be about putting all his enemies under his feet. Seems to indicate in the previous verse in 24, the idea of every rule and every authority and power, that this includes demonic powers in the world and Satan's rebellion against God, but it also includes earthly nations who have arrayed themselves against Christ and rebellious people who stand in defiance against Christ. All his enemies. And the imagery here is really potent as far as putting all his enemies under his feet. This is an image that would have been like familiar to them in the day, but we don't see very much today. It's the idea of a conquering king being faced with a defeated king, and the defeated king is on his knees in front of the conquering king, and the conquering king puts his foot on the back of that king. 
there are a few more vulnerable places than being sprawled out of your face with somebody else's foot on the back of your head. He says, that's how Christ is going to defeat his enemies. Christ's victory will be absolute in this moment. Let me read from Psalms 110. The psalm that in uh, Acts, excuse me, Peter was quoting from. In Psalm 110, it says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's pretty potent imagery, is it not? The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. When Christ returns, his victory will be absolute. His victory will be comprehensive. His victory will be unavoidable. All his enemies will be defeated. That is absolutely astonishing as we look out over the world, is it not? We get concerned with the wars and the rumors of wars. We get concerned with foreign nations rising in power and the position of our own nation in the world system. When Christ comes back, all enemies are subjugated like that. And then we get these absolutely unbelievable words. Read them slowly, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Our hearts should cry out at that proclamation. Death entered into the world when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, and Christ will be victorious over the grave. And you're going, I thought that's kind of already taken place. When Christ was raised and he was brought back to life, wasn't that a conquest of death? Yes, absolutely it was. When Christ came, or when Christ was raised, death was conquered. But when Christ returns, death will be obliterated. The very thought of death and pain and mourning and crying will be an afterthought when Christ returns. Christ's victory will include even death. And our immortal souls cry out for that reality today. We say, Christ, come back today. Because I see the ravages of death, and I see the ravages of pain, and I see the ravages of disease, and I see loved ones getting sick and dying. Christ, come back today. Can we just pause for a moment and marvel at that reality? Can we just pause for a moment and consider that when Christ comes back, we won't even have a categorical idea for death. It will be so foreign to our new experience that it won't even make sense. The death that we live with daily, the death that we experience daily will be obliterated when Christ comes back. If that doesn't inspire worship in you, I don't know what does. But in addition to destroying his enemies, here we also see Christ delivering the kingdom to the Father. And I wish I had more time to go through these verses, but I'm just going to have to cover them summarily. Look at verse 27 and 28. For God, and I take it to be the Father, has put all things in subjection under his, Christ's, feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, that being the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And we go, Paul, that's why you're hard to read. <laughs> Essentially what Paul is saying here is, once Christ has defeated his enemies, 
he delivers the kingdom to the Father. He says, Father, I did this for you. Right? And even, and, and what he's trying to clarify is he's like, all of things being put under his feet does not mean that the Father is put under Christ's feet, just so you don't get the Trinity confused. The Christ submits in function, though he is not less in essence to the Father, but he submits and he turns the kingdom over to the Father. Why? To exalt the Father. Look at the end of verse 28. That God may be all in all. Because God's glory is the trajectory of creation. God's glory is the purpose he created creation, and Christ returns that purpose back to creation and says, here you go. Be glorified. And I love the imagery here of Christ. Christ as the better Adam where Adam failed. Christ as the faithful Israel where Israel failed. Christ as the true and right human where each and every one of us fail. Christ comes and does exactly what mankind was supposed to do from the beginning. Where God says, I've made you an image bearer to reign over creation. And what, does Adam, what do Adam and Eve do? They rebel in that order and they put creation over themselves and they put themselves over God. And Christ comes and he says, let me put that back where it belongs. Mankind submitting to the Father and glorifying him with creation and subjugation under him. The certainty of Christ's resurrection also anticipates Christ's ultimate victory. The fact that Christ was raised from the dead and defeated death allows us to look forward and say, Christ will come victorious one day. Christ's victory secures our victory. Does anybody remember what 9-11 felt like? September 11th, 2001? I think it was in fifth grade, and I realize that dates me a little bit here for some of you, because some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and others who go, fifth grade, really? Like, it was a really hard day. It's a day that none of us who were alive will ever forget. But do you remember what it felt like coming out of 9-11? The united purpose and intent that America felt in that moment? As President Bush preached, and, or not preached, but spoke and addressed the steel of American resolve as it became known. Where we were united in our pursuit of justice and we knew precisely that we would win that battle. And we can argue whether or not that was ever achieved, but that feeling was tangible in that moment, was it not? And the sad reality is that Christ's return has historically been a source of division in the church when Paul intends the very opposite. He intends it to be a unifying rally cry saying, we will be victorious with Christ when he comes back. Again, like I said, like a car windshield. He encourages them to look through the front mirror, to look clearly to a point in front of them, and to drive toward it with absolute certainty and unity. Says, that's your rally point. That's where you're headed. There's no need for being divisive and for all these different cliques within your church. Our guaranteed future victory with Christ should inspire unity in the church today. This victory of Christ, this resurrection and victory one day should inspire unity in the church, not division. That means for as individual believers, we have to recognize that Paul is addressing the Corinthian problems, the problems that all of us struggle with as well. He's telling them of the unity they should have in the resurrection to address the divisions that they were currently experiencing. He's saying to us, rather than divisions over leaders fighting over who's in charge, 
we prioritize the message over the messenger. Rather than disagreements over morality, we prioritize holiness over our personal comfort. Rather than disputes over our rights and freedoms, we prioritize love over our personal liberties. Rather than disunity over our gatherings, we surrender personal preference for church unity. So ask yourself the question that he intends the Corinthians to ask. Will the things I'm fighting about matter when Christ comes back in victory? Will the divisions that I'm feeling with other believers in the church matter when Christ comes back in victory? If I were to be able to tell you with assurance that Christ is returning tomorrow, would what we're fighting about today matter? As a church, we must ruthlessly combat anything that would divide us and constantly look to Christ's future return. And obviously, that does not mean jettisoning theology. He started with the gospel at the beginning of chapter 15. But all these preferences and disputes and the schisms that were dividing the church in Corinth, he says, you should gain unity from the victory that you will have one day. We should find unity in the future victory of Christ. And finally, by looking to the past and looking to the future, we also get encouragement for today. Through Christ's resurrection, we gain help for present purity. Look at verse 29 through 34. Paul begins with otherwise. And he addresses kind of an interesting thing in the church by addressing three probing questions. Look at this. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And we go, what is Paul talking about? There's some debate within the commentaries on this particular subject, but I think it's actually fairly straightforward. There seems to be a bizarre practice within the Corinthian church where living believers are being baptized on behalf of believers who have died. And Paul is not endorsing that behavior, but he is critiquing their own consistency or inconsistency. He's saying, if there is no resurrection, then why would you bother with that practice? Again, it's not endorsement. We don't see anywhere else throughout the New Testament this sort of practice endorsed or commanded. But Paul is saying, your own action and theology are in contradiction with themselves. Why would you baptize people on behalf of the dead if the dead have perished? And he goes on and he says, why are we in danger? Why would we suffer danger or death? Look at verse 30 and 31. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. And why as an apostle would I go on enduring persecution and risking death if there's no future hope? I am the most of all to be pitied if I've invested my entire life and risked death at multiple occasions for a Jesus that was never raised from the dead. That would be foolish. And then one more question. Look at verse 32. What do I gain? If humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I think this is a really insightful comment. It says, why did I bother fighting with beasts at Ephesus? And just for clarity, this is probably a metaphorical statement. He's probably not talking about literally fighting with beasts in the arena. He's talking about addressing false teachers. He says, if, if all of it's for naught, and if no one is ever raised from the dead, then we might as well endorse the words of Isaiah 22. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, in case anyone has quoted these verses to you before as a believer, let me put these into context a bit. 
What's going on in Isaiah chapter 22 is Isaiah is prophesying judgment on the people of Israel, and he's talking of their impending doom and enemies coming against Jerusalem, and rather than repenting in sackcloth and ashes, the people go, well, let's just live it up. If we're going to be defeated anyway, let's just have a party. Rather than repenting before God, they say, let's just make the most of the little time we have. YOLO, right? You only live once. Might as well make the most of it. This is the sentiment you find in modern books and movies and all over the place in our culture, is it not? If there's no life after death, you better make the most of this one. I think Paul would categorically disagree. That there is hope, there is life after death, and what you do today matters for that eternity. Paul doesn't believe that this is a hypothetical reality. He says, what you believe about the resurrection today changes the way you live today. It changes what you focus on today. It changes what you value today. It changes what you do and how you behave and what is important to you today. If you're not living for the future, then you're saying, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul says this doesn't make any sense. And naturally, what follows these three questions is then three exhortations, three commands on the way they should live. Look at this. He offers three sobering exhortations here in verse 33 and 34. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken super as it is right, and do not go on sinning. He says, don't be deceived. Wake up and don't go on sinning. Live today in purity in light of what we've seen in the future and in the past. First, don't be deceived. He warns of the danger of bad company because ignorance is contagious, right? You get a whole bunch of people that don't know anything and you got the blind leading the blind. I would refer to this as distracted driving. Have you ever been in a car, you got a whole bunch of people and only one person is paying attention to the road, everybody else is worried about the radio and the food and everything else going on? Not for the parents that have high schoolers, but that's pretty much how high schoolers drive in general. The person driving the car may know where they're going, they may understand the rules of the road, they may understand how to drive defensively, but if they're listening to all these other voices that are screaming around them, they're going to be veering all over the road. Say, stop being deceived, stop listening to all of those voices. You're going to be veering all over the road. He says, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. Now, if that isn't vivid imagery, I don't know what is. He warns of the danger of drunken stupor, and he doesn't mean literally, he means metaphorically. He says, unconscious, drunken living is easy. It is easy to go through life without self-examination, to go through life regardless of what you consider as valuable, to just kind of deal with the thing in front of you and just kind of blindly move forward in your life, just tackling the next thing after the next thing after the next thing as they come at you. He calls that drunken stupor. And it's like driving drunk. You may understand how you're supposed to drive. You may know where you're trying to get to. But if you're intoxicated, you're never going to get there. You're going to be all over the road. He says that's like living with unconscious alertness to what's happening. And then lastly, he says, do not go on sinning. And do not go on sinning. He warns of the danger of ongoing, unrepentant sin. Because sin in our lives is blinding. 
Sin has a blinding effect that helps us not be able to see where we're going, much like if the headlights in your car were out and you were driving blind at night. Again, you may have the right tools to drive well. You may even know where you're going. You may be sober, but if you can't see where you're going, it doesn't make any difference. If you're driving blind, you're going to hit something. And he says, sin is blinding. Don't go on sinning. Because it's going to blind you to the realities of the past and the realities of the future that you have to keep a hold of if you're going to walk and live for Christ. The certainty of Christ's resurrection should result in truthful, sober, pure living today. And finally, he drives a stake into the coffin here right at the end. And he says, let me tell you what the real problem is here. Look at verse 34. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He says, you want to know what the real problem is at play in your church, at play in these discussions? There is a shameful lack of divine knowledge. You claim to have these incredible spiritual experiences. You claim to have all of this impressive knowledge, but you don't know God. So you have a real lack of knowing God. Paul describes what this looks like a little bit more in his second letter to the Corinthians. Turn to the Bible just a few pages to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In his second follow-up letter, well, it's not actually a second letter, but it's the second letter that we have, He writes here in chapter 3, these words. Look at verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, and we all, with unveiled face. That's a metaphor he's talking about for not being able to have the saving knowledge of God. I'm not going to address that here, but beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, the Spirit's job is to reveal God to His people. And when you are presented with that kind of glory, your life is changed. Back here in 1 Corinthians, he says, there is a shameful lack of knowledge of God. You have not seen God, and so you are ignorant of God, and so you are embracing all sorts of ridiculous things. Paul's argument here Living life today is that Christ's triumph demands our sobriety. If Christ has defeated sin and death, if he's really been raised from the dead, it demands that we live soberly today. Our past certainty and our future victory should motivate moral purity today. Does it for you? Does looking back to Christ's resurrection and looking forward to Christ's return promote sober living and pure living in you today? Ask yourself, am I driving distracted in my life? Am I driving, listening to a bunch of voices scream at me from the world and wandering all over the road? Is my life, the voice I'm listening to, Christ and the Word of God, or am I listening to all sorts of voices that would try to get me to go all sorts of different directions? Whose voices are you listening to? Are you driving distracted? Some of us are probably driving drunk. I don't mean literally, I mean metaphorically here. Are you coasting through life on autopilot? 
Not worried about the condition of your own heart. Not worried about what you're spending your life on. Just pursuing the next thing that seems to make you happy. Are you driving drunk? Oblivious to where this car might ultimately end. And to the accident that's waiting for you. Or are you driving blind? Are you harboring some unconfessed sin in your heart? So worried about other people finding out about it, trying to hide it from God as well. Not realizing that trying to go through life harboring that unrepentant sin is blinding you to the path your life needs to take. Are you driving blind? Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Paul's message here in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's fairly straightforward. He's saying Christ's resurrection and his imminent return are sources of hope, unity, and purity for the church today. So as we drive through life, God has given us a clear windshield to the future and a clear view through the rearview mirror of Christ's resurrection in the past. Are you bothering to look at either one of them? Or are you driving like your windshield is fogged over and your rear view mirror is out of your car? He's asking us to consider, are you living in light of Christ's resurrection? Is his return and his victory a source of unity for you in the church today? Let's pray. Father, we declare that because your word teaches it, we know that Christ not only died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, but he was buried in the tomb for three days, affirming his death, and you raised him again from the dead on the third day, verifying his payment for sin and giving us hope that one day we will be raised as well. Lord, help us to build our lives on that truth. Help us to live in light of the fact that we know Christ was raised from the dead and we know that someday he will come back to defeat every enemy, including sin and death. Father, help us to live for that today. Give us the motivation to live with purity today in light of your coming back. In Christ's name, amen.